As our interest in and concern for the humanities becomes weaker and weaker, the climate crisis simply worsens. We don't know how to behave. We don't know how to respond. This thought was ignited after I read an opinion piece by David Brooks in the New York Times. It has the headline, How to Save a Sad, Lonely, Angry and Mean Society. And in there somewhere, in there somewhere, yes, was the reasons that the climate crisis is worsening and that people are sad, lonely, angry and mean. And the climate crisis is the outcome. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Now pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The first paragraph from the David Brooks story in the New York Times opens with the observation. Recently, while browsing in the Museum of Modern Art store in New York, I came across a tote bag with the inscription, You are no longer the same after experiencing art. It's a nice sentiment, I thought, but is it true? Or to be more specific, does consuming art, music, literature and the rest of what we call culture make you a better person? Yes, David Brooks, I do believe it makes you a better person. And to survive and thrive in a warmer world, I believe we all need to be better people. The story is How to Save a Sad, Lonely, Angry and Mean Society. And you'll find a link for that story in the show notes. Let's go now with 90 seconds from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Each summer, high schoolers from across the country descend on Fort Worth, Texas for the Solar Car Challenge. They race hundreds of miles in solar-powered electric cars that they design and build themselves. Sebastian Gonzalez is with the Iron Lions, a team from Greenville, Texas, that won its division in last year's race from Fort Worth to El Paso. He says they spent the school year creating a car that can charge up on solar alone and is efficient and fast. It's not just the solar energy that you're dealing with, but you're also dealing with battery chemistries and electronics that will drain as minimal power from an electrical system as possible. Their car looked almost like a solar panel on wheels, with a pod for the driver peeking out the center. Gonzalez says people along the route were amazed to learn that their DIY creation could reach speeds of more than 70 miles an hour. When we told them our car can run from 9 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon when the race ends and we still have some battery left, these people get really, really shocked. Now Gonzalez's team is busy preparing for this year's race. He says what he and other participants are learning through the process can prepare them to help design and engineer a cleaner energy future. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. Here now is the audio from a story in WA Today, and the headline for that story is A major problem on Perth's fringe could see city haunted by ghost suburbs. The story is by Sarah Brooks. Here is the audio. 
Largely treeless residential housing estates on Perth's urban fringe could be abandoned and transformed into ghost suburbs, as climate change makes the city less hospitable, according to grim predictions. Futurologist Rocky Scopality said while Perth basked in the sunshine of record immigration and a booming housing market, its potential transformation into a ghost metropolis should prompt a rethink by policymakers on how we make the city sustainable. Scopality said factors that could trigger a significant population decline in Perth over the next 30 to 100 years included climate change and water scarcity, which would leave the city's sprawling suburbs vulnerable. Worsening droughts and extreme weather events, as predicted by the Western Australian Planning Commission in 2014, could make Perth less habitable and attractive to residents, he said. Perth has finite freshwater resources, a concern highlighted by the Department of Water, which could become a major constraint for Perth's growth, limiting its ability to sustain a large population. Sustained growth of the economy and population has seen the state's water use double since the mid-1980s. At the same time, climate change has intensified, with reductions in rainfall causing historically low inflows to dams. Perth-based regenerative scientist Bernard Callas said water scarcity posed a challenge with Perth's population predicted to balloon from 2.1 million to more than 4 million by 2026, making it the third largest city in Australia. We can only support the population we've got now because of massive investment in desalination plants, if we took that away we couldn't support our current population, he said. There are places in the world which are hotter that totally survive off using desalinated water, but it's not a sustainable practice. New research released last week forecast WA would reach a population milestone of 3 million as early as 2025. In the year to June 2023, WA's population increased by 3.11%, far above the national annual growth rate of 2.4%, said McCrindle's principal social researcher and demographer, Mark McCrindle. Over the past 12 months, WA saw an increase of 86,769 residents, its largest increase ever, a split of 16% through natural increase, 13% through net interstate migration, and 71% through net overseas migration. That means more homes at a time when low-density suburbia already stretches more than 70 kilometers along the coast. As Perth grapples with the biggest housing supply crisis it has ever faced, planning ideologies from all corners of the property sector are colliding daily over what should Perth look like in the future, and how much further it should stretch. It's those newer suburbs on the urban fringe being built to house the city's burgeoning population that are the most susceptible to becoming ghost suburbs in the decades ahead according to Green's MLC Brad Pettit. Pettit said a population exodus was likely to be exacerbated by climate change, with the largely tree-less suburbs the most at risk of population decline. In summer there can be a 10-degree temperature difference between coastal and inland suburbs in Perth, he said. But it is these outer areas where we continue to build 70% of Perth's new houses in hot, treeless rows with black roofs a long way from job centres, amenities and everything else that makes a community that are most at risk of becoming ghost suburbs in the decades ahead. Pettit said for Perth to remain a livable city there needed to be a shift to being a more compact, better connected city with sensible infill in established suburbs that are closer to jobs, services and transport options. We also need to diversify our economy away from resource extraction, especially fossil fuels, that are likely to become stranded assets in the decades ahead. Pettit said for as long as WA continues to put so many of its eggs in the resource extraction basket Perth's population will be vulnerable to the boom-bust cycle of these industries and the population fluctuations that follow. 
He said a major contraction in the gas and iron ore industries in WA is probable in the decade ahead. Scopality said those changes in global trade or resource prices could lead to a depopulation of Perth. He said existing ghost cities and suburbs worldwide, such as Detroit, Michigan and Ordos in China, offered valuable lessons for policymakers and urban planners when mapping out Perth's future. While Perth currently enjoys a prosperous present, considering its potential vulnerabilities to climate change, resource depletion, and economic shifts is crucial, he said. Investing in sustainable water management, diversifying the economy beyond resource extraction, and focusing on developing vibrant and well-connected suburbs can help mitigate the risk of ghost suburbs and ensure Perth's long-term sustainability and resilience. Callas said it made little sense to continue to build houses on top of each other with black roofs and little space for greenery. He has turned his 670-square-metre block in Alexander Heights into an urban farm to combat the heat island effect. On a hot summer day you can see we've created a micro-environment on our property. You can feel the difference the green makes as opposed to our neighbours with complete paving out the front or lawn with no trees, he said. How are these new suburbs ever going to have areas with the benefits of all these trees when there's no space to plant them? Callas said ensuring homes were built sustainably with space for greenery needed to be enshrined in government policy. Ideally developers would do this on their own, but they are more intent to cram as many dwellings as they can into onto a block, creating a bigger heatsink, he said. And now we have the audio from a Australian Broadcasting Corporation story on the AM program with the reporter Annie Guest. The headline of the story is Queensland Farmers Welcome Ex-Cyclones Rain. While there's relief along Queensland's coast that Cyclone Kiralee didn't cause significant damage, it's still dumping significant and widespread rain in the state's west. Some farmers are welcoming the deluge, while others are disappointed they've missed out so far, as Annie Guest reports. As North Queenslanders braced for Cyclone Kiralee, hundreds of kilometres away, graziers like Trina Patterson hoped it'd bring much-needed rain. We thought that we would end up with good rain initially um, from the forecast initially, but then, you know, then they sort of said, oh, but the rain was going to the northern side of the cyclone and not to the southern, and then it was, you know, the cyclone was going to go out into the Territory, and I thought, oh, well, that's it, we're done. And even as the ex-cyclone's path shifted again, the cattle and crop farmer from near Rolleston in central Queensland remained pessimistic. I'd heard that the cyclone was going to do a U-turn, but I thought it was going to be more rain out in the channel country. And go, I was sort of quite concerned that we were going to miss out and um, didn't expect to have the rain that we had. Um, it was beautiful thunderstorm rain. It rolled through. Um, no, it's, it's really, really good. How much of a sense of, of relief comes with rain like this? Oh, heaps, heaps. Back in um, 2018, 2019, you know, that was our driest time here. Um, in the time that we've been here in Bottletree Downs. And, you know, I, I don't want to go back to that time again. Um, so it's just always great to have that security of, you know, full soil profile, um, full dams, happy cattle, um, beautiful grass, as far as the eye can see, to, to ease that worry over, um, over water. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Others, like cattle farmer Louise Martin, are hoping her property near Tambo in central western Queensland will get more than the six millimetres it had had when she spoke to AM. I do know that we're not the only people. There's lots of pockets in Queensland who have completely missed out. 
uh, and I'm not I'm not the only one, but uh, it it is tough when uh, you know long term droughts so still so fresh in your mind. Her property was drought declared from 2013 until just last year. It's still very close in our in our minds and our memories, and there's still that sort of trepidatious feel of, oh, it's raining, seems to be raining everywhere but not here. Is it ever going to rain again? And uh, unconsciously I think anxiety levels um, build up a bit, uh, especially when the rain has been falling not too far from here and, and surrounds. But she remains optimistic ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee might yet deliver enough water to fill dams and complete a full recovery from drought. Meanwhile, in Townsville, electricity crews have been working to reconnect tens of thousands of customers who've been without power in heatwave conditions since the cyclone. Any guest reporting. And now we have a story from The Conversation. The headline for that story is, US military is a bigger polluter than as many as 140 countries. Shrinking this war machine is a must. The story begins. The US military's carbon footprint is enormous. Like corporate supply chains, it relies upon an extensive global network of container ships, trucks and cargo planes to supply its operations with everything from bombs to humanitarian aid and hydrocarbon fuels. A new study calculated the contribution of this vast infrastructure to climate change. Greenhouse gas emission accounting usually focuses on how much energy and fuel civilians use, but recent work, including our own, shows that the US military is one of the largest polluters in history, consuming more liquid fuels and emitting more climate-changing gases than most medium-sized countries. If the military were a country, its fuel usage alone would make it the 47th largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world sitting behind Peru and Portugal. Let's listen now to the audio from a new daily story, which has the headline, Residents flee as really scary floods deluge homes, streets. Active across southeast Queensland after spending the night saving residents from fast-rising floodwaters as severe thunderstorms rolled through. Matthew Kastunen joins us now, live from Samford, just outside Brisbane, where families were plucked to safety after getting caught in dangerous conditions. Matt, how are residents faring now? Good afternoon, Neralda. Well, there's a sense of relief but the, because the rain has stopped, but it has really been coming in and out throughout the morning. I want to give you an example as to how much rain has fallen in the last 12 hours. If you look behind me, this is actually the Sanford Bowls Club. It's pretty much a lake now. Water ripped through here overnight, and here alone in Sanford, we saw 350 millimetres of rain. At Sanford Valley, we saw 336 millimetres of rain, 302 at Draper, and at nearby Caboolture, 263 mils. Now, as you mentioned, We've seen a number of rescues overnight, 13, many of those in Moreton Bay, the Lockyer Valley, and, of course, where we are here just north of Brisbane. The SES has received 28 calls for help as of up to 5am this morning, but now, really, it is a sense of recovery for a lot of these residents. The waters came thick and fast. Of course, it has been a summer of natural disasters for Queensland and Norelda. In the news at 3.30, we'll hear more from those residents who are now going through that clean-up, especially here this will cost millions of dollars alone and they only just cleaned up following floods that swept through here in 2022. Neralda? Matthew Castanian there. 
Let's move now to a story from Crikey. The story is by Joanna Nalu. It has the headline, Australia has no national plan for climate change adaptation. Why? The story begins. Most conversations about climate action in Australia centre on reducing emissions. Yet reducing emissions is only part of the climate story. We must also plan for how we adapt to the impacts of climate change, how we adjust to rising sea levels, prepare for heat waves, and manage changing rainfall patterns is what makes nations resilient in the face of climate change. The floods that devastated North Queensland in December 2023, northern New South Wales in 2022, and 2020's black summer bushfires show that Australia needs to step up its conversation about how it plans to adapt to the impacts of climate change. But in Australia, where climate change has been a long-standing political issue, legislation on climate adaptation has been slow. As the Australian Government prepares to release its issues paper for its first national adaptation plan in the coming months, it's a good time to reflect on why Australia has lagged on climate adaptation legislation and what's needed to make its plan a success. Climate is most certainly changing here in my podcast recording bolt hole. It's getting hotter by the second. And so I've just got to go. Yes, I'll be short and quick. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. I appreciate the fact that you follow me. Because if you follow this podcast, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Now, until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now, you take care. And you stay safe.